Welcome back. We're on another study in the book of Daniel. You'll notice that I'm not in a familiar environment for you. My wife and I are traveling for some appointments and we are in California. California has been rain soaked. Uh, you maybe have read about some of the flooding in San Diego and some of the flooding in Los Angeles and further north, but we are between San Diego and Los Angeles and where we're staying is on high ground. So we are doing just fine. Thank you for joining us again for this Bible study on the book of Daniel. We're on Daniel chapter five tonight. And you'll remember that in Daniel chapter one, we found that Daniel was taken into captivity as a young man brought to the lavish city of Babylon. Babylon was the leading ruler of the world at that time. Nebuchadnezzar attacked Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar attacked Jerusalem, the king of Babylon. Attacked it in 605 BC, attacked it again in 587, and uh, Babylon dominated the world. Jews were brought into captivity to Babylon. And so Daniel 1 begins with a great defeat for the true God, but Daniel purposes in his heart to serve God, and the chapter ends with a great victory for the true God. So in Daniel chapter 1, God is revealed as the one who turns defeat into victory. Often we have defeats in our own lives, and God can take those defeats as we give our lives into his hands and turn them into victory. In chapter 2, you remember we had the dream of the great king, and uh, the king Nebuchadnezzar had a dream of an image, head of gold, breasts and arms of silver, thighs of brass, legs of iron, feet of iron and clay, a rock cut out without hands that smashes the image. That Daniel chapter 2, the great theme is the God who reveals the future. And if God knows the future of the nations and God can reveal the destiny of the nations, he knows our future too, and we can be safe in his hands. In Daniel chapter three, the king in rebellion against God sets up a golden image and he commands all of his citizenry to worship that image. But in Daniel chapter three, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego do not bow down. They're thrown into the fiery furnace miraculously. Jesus enters into the flames of their life and protects them. So in our life, when we go through the flames, when the journey is long and the mountain is high and the road's rough, we go through the flames of life. Jesus is there with us as he was with the Hebrew worthies in the flames. We're never alone. I love the old song, just when I need him, Jesus is near. Just when I falter, just when I fear, just when I need him most. And then in chapter four, it's the only chapter in the book of Daniel, not written by Daniel. It's written by Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar loses his kingdom, wanders around with the royal beasts. But then he looks to heaven, reminds us of Isaiah 45, verse 22. Look unto me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. So in chapter four, the king who becomes a beast wanders around on all fours, grunting like a beast looks to heaven and is restored to his throne. So we, in our fallen nature, says Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? As we come to Jesus, we open our hearts to him and look to Christ. He robes us with the robe of righteousness, takes us and places us upon a throne, puts a royal diadem upon our heads and puts a scepter in our hands. In Christ, through Christ, because the righteousness of Christ we too can reign as kings with God and priests forever and ever. 
Daniel 1, the God who turns defeat into victory. Daniel 2, the true prophet who reveals the future that we can trust in. Daniel 3, he is the priest, the deliverer who leaps into the flames of our life. Daniel 4, he's the ruler, he's the king that one day will rule upon his throne. So we come now to Daniel chapter 5. Do you have your Bible? Well, you know what? Before we go into Daniel chapter 5, though, let's let's look at a few questions because I did have a couple of questions that came in. Incidentally, if you have any questions, we'll put on the screen where you can uh, write in for your questions. You can write in to info at hopelives365.com. That's info at hopelives365.com. Write in your questions. They may be on the book of Daniel. They may be Bible questions. So here's a couple questions. Here's David from Maryland. There were three righteous men thrown into the flames. That's in chapter three. Then another glorious one joined them. Could that represent the proclamation of the three angels' messages in Revelation 14? And then the great mighty angel in chapter 18 declaring Babylon is fallen. Um, David, I do think there's a correlation with Revelation, but I don't think it's that particular one. We have three men in the fiery furnace. They're standing in the flames of life. So I don't think each one of them represents one of the three angels. Um, then we have the third angel coming to protect them. In uh, the book of Revelation, chapter 18, when the uh, fourth angel comes, uh, uh, when the angel comes to protect Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the, in the fiery flames, um, yes, he was protecting. But when you look at the fourth angel, that joins his ministry with the three angels uh, of Revelation 14. You look at Revelation 18. The earth is filled with his glory, and uh, the earth um, is brightened with the glory of God, the character of Christ. So there is a final proclamation there that I think is somewhat different than the angel who protects Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery flames. But here's where I think the connection is. Nebuchadnezzar passed a universal decree that anybody who didn't worship the image should uh, be thrown into the fiery furnace. It was a universal death decree to violate the commandments of God, namely the uh, first and second commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods before me, and thou shalt not bow down to any graven image. So here is a universal world leader who passes a universal decree that anybody that doesn't worship in a certain way should be killed. The three angels' messages warn us against something very similar. They warn us indeed that there will come a time when the beast power will rise, church and state will be united, and worship once again will be compelled. I think that's where the parallel is. And just like the angel protected Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, so Christ will protect us in the last days. Hope that helps. Uh, there's another question that has come in too. It says, um, King Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter four, the seven times period, is it literal or symbolic? It is a literal seven-year period that was fulfilled upon King Nebuchadnezzar. Some people want to take the seven times or the seven years, make them prophetic, multiply seven times 360, come out with 2520, and apply that to end events. The reason that that can't be done is a couplefold. One, chapter four is in the historical section of the book, not the prophetic section. Secondly, 
In Daniel 4, verse 28, it says, all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. In other words, it was fulfilled. Daniel 4, verse 33, the very hour the word was fulfilled concerning Nebuchadnezzar. So in chapter 4, it is very, very clear that the prophecy was fulfilled. If you have any questions, again, send them in to us. I'll be happy to answer them for you. Again, where do you send them? You send them to info, info at hopelives365.com. Questions, info at hopelives365.com. Some have asked, too, how can they get the study guides for this series? If you want the study guides, you can send to hopelives365.com forward slash weekly Bible studies. Study guides for Daniel, hopelives365.com forward slash weekly Bible study. Well, with that background, let's bow our heads and pray and jump right into our topic for today. Father in heaven, how I thank you that you're in charge. I thank you that in spite of the challenges of life that you're there, we learn from Daniel precious lessons of faith, precious lessons of prayer, lessons of confidence in you. So tonight as we study, speak to our hearts, encourage us, draw us close to you, and prepare us for the overwhelming events that will soon burst upon this world as an overwhelming surprise. Keep us faithful to you, I pray thee in Christ's name. Amen. Now a little background in Daniel chapter 5. How old do you think Daniel was when we come to Daniel chapter 5? How old? Well, are we guessing? No, we have pretty good information. You remember in Daniel chapter 1, when Daniel was taken captive, the Bible says in Daniel chapter 1 and um, verse 4, it talks about those who were taken captive, and it says, young men in whom there was no blemish, good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge, and quick to understand. Young men. The word there for young men is a word that is uh, like teenagers, but not young teenagers, not 13 or 14. How do we know that? Well, it says that they were gifted in wisdom. They possessed knowledge. They were quick to understand. So they had some educational background. Most authors understand that Daniel was about 17. So if Daniel was 17 in or thereabouts in chapter 1, and there's a 70-year captivity that Jeremiah predicted upon Babylon. And if in chapter 5, the Medes and the Persians end that 70-year captivity, so you'd have 70 years of captivity. Daniel is 17 when he goes into captivity, so he's about 87 years old. The young king, Belshazzar, here, the Babylonian king, is about 36 or 37. So what we're going to see here is a young upstart, young king who wants nothing more than parties and pleasure and thrills. The Babylon was a sex-centered, morally twisted and defiled, degenerate in that palace. And as we're going to see that, this great party, you're going to see the contrast between the foolishness and the folly of a young king who's obsessed with pleasure and Daniel, a man of God, Who's, reign, who's, who's been in that kingdom, guiding empires. He's been there with Nebuchadnezzar, been there with Nabonidus, been there throughout the empire. He's been, he, he has guided over 70 years the Babylonian empire, giving his wisdom. 
So you're going to see a man of faith, a man of prayer, a man of confidence in God, a man of deep trust in God. And we're going to contrast him with Belshazzar, a weak, vacillating, pleasure-centered king. So let's go. Let's jump right into our chapter. Daniel chapter 5, verse 1. Belshazzar the king made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in the presence of the thousand. While he tasted the wine, Belshazzar gave the command to bring the gold and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple which had been in Jerusalem, that the king and his lords and his wines and his concubines might drink from them. Now notice, this is some drunken feast. The wine is flowing. Everything to tempt the eye and delight the taste is upon the table. Long-robed Babylonian statesmen hold close, finely gowned, perfumed Babylonian women. The dance floor is gyrating with the music of Babylon. The wine is flowing. Conscience is at half mast. And Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar says, bring me the goblets, bring me the vessels that we took out of the temple of Jerusalem that my father took there. Now notice one thing here. It says Nebuchadnezzar is his father. We know that Nabonidus was his father. Is that a mistake? Not at all. In Hebrew culture, remember the Bible says Jesus is the son of David, not lineage. So often the Bible uses the term loosely, relative of. So you got, what's the genealogy? First, you have Nebuchadnezzar, son is Nebuchadnezzar. Then you have Nebuchadnezzar, son, one of his children, Nabonidus. Then Nabonidus, and he had other sons too. And then Nabonidus gives birth to uh, Belshazzar. So really, um, Nebuchadnezzar is the grandfather, but the term in Hebrew is used loosely here. But here's the point. They're drinking. They're, 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 his mind is besotted. And in an act of utter rebellion against God, in an act of defiance against God, he says, bring the sacred vessels, the vessels that were used for the worship of the Most High. The vessels that were used in the sanctuary with the Shekinah glory of God bring those vessels. And they bring them. And the Bible says, verse 3, then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple of the house of God, which had been in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines drank from them. Can you imagine that? They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze and iron and wood and stone. Here, the sacred vessels that were used to worship God were brought into this feast of drunken debauchery with these immoral scenes, these sacred vessels. And they worshiped the gods of gold, silver, wood, and stone. This is the act of ultimate defiance. God has mercy. God is gracious. But there comes a point where human beings can go beyond the mercy of God. We saw that in the days of the flood. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 6, because we see a repeat of that here. Genesis, the sixth chapter. There was a time that all society went beyond the mercy, the grace, the goodness of God. Genesis chapter 6. We're looking there first at Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every intent of the thoughts of his heart 
It was only evil continually. And verse 11, the earth was corrupt before God and the earth was filled with violence. So in the days of Noah, society filled the cup of its iniquity and stepped across the line from God's mercy to God's judgment. We see the same thing in Sodom and Gomorrah, an immoral, pleasure-centered society. They step over the line. In Noah's day, the rains fell. Sodom and Gomorrah's day, the fire fell. And we see the same thing in Babylon. There comes a point where human beings can exhaust God's mercy. They can turn their back on God's love. They can resist the claims of the eternal one. God did everything he could to reach the society in the days of Noah. God did everything he could to reach society in the days of Lot. God did everything he could to reach Babylon. In fact, in the interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dreams, he revealed himself and Nebuchadnezzar accepted the true God, but Belshazzar did not. He went further and further and further away from God until he took those goblets out. And that was the last act of defiance. You know, there's a last feast, a last night, a last party for every human being on earth. If Jesus does not come, every one of us will have that last night. And that's why Christ is appealing to us now. That's why Christ is moving upon our hearts now to make an eternal decision for him, to leave nothing, nothing between us and our Savior. I love that old song, nothing between my soul and my Savior not of this world's delusive dream. So we go back. They're drinking wine, verse 4, praising the gods of gold and silver, bronze and iron, wood and stone. But in the same hour, the fingers of a man's hand appeared and wrote opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. Notice, it writes against the lampstand. That lampstand that was in the sanctuary of God. That lampstand that illuminated the ancient sanctuary and the ancient temple. That lampstand that represented the light of Christ's love, the light of his grace, the light of his word. That lampstand is brought into a pagan banquet hall. And God says it's enough. God says the cup of iniquity has been filled. And God's mercy now becomes God's judgment. The king's countenance changes, verse 6. His thoughts trouble him so that the joints of his hips were loosed and his knees knocked together. And the king cries aloud to the astrologers, the Chaldeans, the soothsayers. The king brings, spoke, saying to the wise men of Babylon, read this writing and, you, and they'll be clothed with purple and a chain of gold around your neck. You'll be the third ruler in the kingdom. Why third ruler? Why third ruler? Nabonidus was the first ruler the king, the father of Belshazzar. But you know what? He didn't like ruling too much. And so as the result of that, Nabonidus built a palace far up the river, Euphrates, and in Timon. And in he was natural history. He kind of smiled, so he liked to chase butterflies. And uh, he said to his son, Belshazzar, you, you rule. So Nabonidus first, Belshazzar second, and then third ruler in the kingdom would be the one who can interpret the dream. But notice what it says. He brings in the Chaldeans, the soothsayers, all the psychics, the astrologers. We saw those guys before, didn't we? Daniel chapter 2, they come in. King Nebuchadnezzar says, tell me what I dreamed and what does it mean? 
astrologers, Chaldeans, soothsayers, magicians say, we don't know. We can't tell you what you dreamed. He said, you're not fooling me. If you can't tell me what I dreamed yesterday, how can you tell me about tomorrow? He, Daniel comes in, interprets the dream. King Nebuchadnezzar knew. But then, chapter 4, king brings them in again. He says, "What? I'll tell you the dream that I had about the tree. What's, what's, what's about this tree that was cut down? Chapter 4. They say, we don't know. Daniel comes in again. See, it's very fascinating to me that the Babylonian kings often did not learn. They did not learn the folly of trusting human wisdom. They did not learn the folly of psychic seers. It's unfortunate today that many turn to astrology columns. There are 3,000 astrology columns in newspapers across America. Many people go onto the internet looking at astrology. Some people go to psychic seers to get the future, but they let men and women down in Daniel's day and they will let you down today. There is no wisdom except satanic wisdom in the magicians, the astrologers, the soothsayers. I love what it says in James 1 verse 5, where God says, if any man lacks wisdom, let him come to me, that abradeth not and giveth to all men liberally. If you're lacking wisdom, you need some decision. God invites you to come to him, to seek his will for any decision you need to make in your life. The handwriting is on the wall. It can't be read. They don't know what it means. Well, the king's wise men came, but they could not, reading verse 8, they could not read the writing or make known the king its interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly troubled. His counsel countenance was changed. His lords were astonished. So just imagine, he's shaking. He's shaking. They put down the wine cups now. The hands that have been embracing Babylonian women fall limp. Every eye is looking upon that wall. Every eye is looking upon that writing upon the wall, that this is mysterious writing written with this finger of fire indelibly upon the wall. Their knees are knocking. Their stomach is in knots. Sweat's pouring down their face. They sense something serious. They sense that this is an omen, a dark omen, but they don't know. The king is angry. He's angry because the, 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 the astrologers, the magicians, Chaldeans could not interpret the dream. So King Belshazzar was troubled, verse 9. His countenance was changed. His lords were astonished. The queen, because of the words of the king and the lords, came to the banquet hall. Now, she wasn't there. Why? Because she was an elderly woman. Who was she? Most translations say the queen mother. This was Nebuchadnezzar's mother. She knew that when Nebuchadnezzar's wife or Belshazzar's mother, Nebuchadnezzar's wife or Belshazzar's mother, most likely, the queen mother knew that when Nebuchadnezzar was out eating grass, the queen mother knew that Daniel was preserving the kingdom. The queen mother knew that he had interpreted Nebuchadnezzar's dream. The queen mother knew, the wife of Nebuchadnezzar knew, knew that he had talked about and interpreted the tree. So she knew she's not in that banquet hall. Belshazzar, her, her, her grandson, calls her and says, come in, come in. She comes. And as she comes in, she says, the queen 
because of the words of the king, verse 10, and the lords came into the banquet hall. Then the queen spoke, saying, O king, live forever. Don't let your thoughts trouble you, nor let the countenance change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy God. And in the days of your father, that would be your grandfather, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him in King Nebuchadnezzar. The king made him chief of the magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, and soothsayers. Inasmuch as an excellent spirit, knowledge, understanding, interpreting dreams, solidifying riddles, and explaining enigmas were found in this Daniel, whom king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he'll give the interpretation. Daniel had a reputation in that empire, and he had a reputation to be a man of honesty, integrity, a man that knew God, the queen mother, likely the wife of Nebuchadnezzar, likely the grandmother of Belshazzar, comes in. Call Daniel. Call Daniel. A man of God, a woman of God, has a reputation of a man or woman of prayer. They have a reputation where they work. They have a reputation in the school they go in. They have a reputation in the neighborhood. This man, this woman knows God. Daniel came in. He's brought in before the king. And Belshazzar speaks to him and says, are you that Daniel who's one of the captives from Judah? Are you one of the captives from Judah? He insults him. Daniel has been in that kingdom for 70 years. Daniel's been one of the wisest men in the kingdom. Daniel likely held the kingdom together when Nebuchadnezzar is wandering and eating grass for seven years. Belshazzar's a little upstart. When Belshazzar was still crawling around in the palace as a young boy, Daniel was reigning there. But Belshazzar wants to, to, to ridicule him. He wants to mock him. And he says, are you one of those captives from Judah? And then verse 16, I've heard of you. I've heard of you. Sure, Belshazzar, you heard of him. Everybody in the empire has heard of this wise, godly man, Daniel. I have heard of you. And I'll tell you what, Daniel, if you read the writing and make known me the interpretation, verse 16, you'll be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and be the third ruler in the kingdom. Why third? Nebuchadnezzar is one, Belshazzar is two. Daniel be the third ruler of the kingdom. I love what Daniel says. Verse 17, then Daniel said before the king, let your gifts be to yourself. Give your rewards to another, but I'll still read the writing and show you the interpretation. In other words, I can't be bribed. I can't be bought off. I will show you the interpretation, but it's not because you're going to give me gifts. It's because God has revealed it to me and it's the right thing to do. It's a wonderful thing. To have such a steadfast faith in God that nothing can shake you. The greatest want of the world is the want of men and women who cannot be bought or sold, who do not fear to call sin by its right name, whose conscience is true to duty as the needle is to the pole. There's an old saying that says every man has his price. It's not true. Daniel did not have his price. Men and women of God today do not have their price. They cannot be bought or sold. Daniel says, I'll tell you, I'll tell you the dream. 
But Daniel knows it's his last chance. Daniel knows it's his last opportunity to make an appeal. So Daniel gives them a history of, his, uh, of, of Babylon's captivity, in, in, of Israel's captivity in Babylon. He gives them that history. He says, O king, most high, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, a kingdom and majesty and glory and honor. And because of his majesty that he gave him, all people, nations, languages trembled and feared before him. Whoever he wished, that's Nebuchadnezzar wished, he executed. Whoever he wished, he kept alive. Whoever he wished, he set up. And whoever he wished, he put down. But when his heart was lifted up, his spirit was hardened in pride. He was deposed from his kingly throne and took his glory with him from him. One of the key things about the book of Daniel is that when men and women live independent from God and their hearts are filled with pride, they may prosper for a short time, but soon they're going to fall. Anything we have in our life comes from God. He is the God who's given us health. The God has given us strength. The God who daily, as some says, loads us with benefits. The failure to recognize the blessings of God means we lose those blessings. The failure to recognize everything God does for us and all his benefits means we lose it. Because if we think that we have built our own kingdoms, we can lose it in an instant. Daniel says, here, his heart was lifted up, verse 20. And his spirit was hardened in pride. He was deposed from his kingly throne and they took the glory from him. Talking about Nebuchadnezzar, driven from the sons of men, till he knew that the most high God rules in the kingdom of men. See, God will do anything he can to reach you, friend. God will do anything he can to reach you. It took Nebuchadnezzar seven years wandering around as a beast before he looked up to heaven. I hope it doesn't take you seven years. Seven years wandering around. God loves you so much that there's nothing he will not do to save you. But notice verse 22. I think it's one of the key verses in the book of Daniel. But you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, although you knew all this. Belshazzar knew, but he did not do. One commentary puts it this way. The opportunity of knowing and obeying the true God had been given him, Belshazzar, but he had not taken it to heart. Now he was about to receive the consequences of his unbelief and rebellion. Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar knew. Belshazzar knew. The issue was not that he did not know. The issue was that he did not do. Take your Bible, please, and turn to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. Nebuchadnezzar knew Rather, Belshazzar knew. Belshazzar knew, but he did not do. John chapter 12. You're looking there at verse 35. Then Jesus said to them, a little while longer, the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness doesn't know where he's going. While you have the light, verse 36, believe in the light that you may be sons of the light. Jesus says, walk while you have the light. God reveals light and truth to each one of us. 
If we walk in the light we have, God will reveal more light to us. If we reject the light he gives to us, we walk in darkness. Is there some light that God is shining on your path just now? Is there some revelation of truth that God is revealing to you just now? By his grace and through his power, walk in the light of that truth. We go back. It says, verse 23, you've lifted up against the Lord of heaven. They brought the vessels of his house. See, this is where he went too far. They brought the vessels of his house before you. And you and your lords and your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. You've praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze and iron and wood and stone, which do not see and hear or know. And the God who holds your breath in his hand and owns all your ways you have not glorified. Then the fingers of the hand were sent from him and his writing was many, many tekle euphorsin. The king stands there shaking many, many tekle euphorsin. Many. Thou art weighed in the balances and found wanting. Tekel, you farsen, your kingdom has been divided and given the Medes and the Persians. Many, God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. Tekel, you've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Paris, your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. That was the last night for Babylon. Judgment fell. I get a sense that judgment's hanging over our world, that we live in a world very much like ancient Babylon, a world that is saturated with pleasure, a world that is filled with materialism, a sex-centered, thrill-jaded world that's going crazy over the things of time rather than the things of eternity. I get a sense that we're living in a world that has drifted further and further from God when right has become wrong and wrong has become right, where truth is mocked and ridiculed and scoffed at, where error is accepted as as the norm, and where unrighteousness is considered righteousness, where people say there is no truth. I get a sense that the grains of sand are running out of the hourglass of time. I get a sense that the cup of iniquity is being filled I get a sense that we're living on the verge of the eternal world, that God is appealing to us to make eternal decisions for Christ, eternal decisions for his kingdom. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Now, it's a very interesting thing. God had predicted the Persian ruler that would overthrow Babylon 150 years before his birth. Let's look at a couple of Bible texts. First, Isaiah chapter 44. Isaiah chapter 44. And I want to share with you something that I think is incredible. Isaiah 44, verse 27. Who said, well, let's go back and look at verse 26 to 28. Isaiah 44, 26 to 28, who confirms the word of his servant and performs the counsel of his messengers who says to Jerusalem, you shall be inhabited. To the cities of Judah, you shall be rebuilt. And I'll raise up her waste places, who says to the deep, be dry, and I'll dry up your rivers, who says to Cyrus, he's my shepherd, 
He'll perform all my pleasure, even saying to Jerusalem, you'll be built into the temple. You shall, uh, your foundation shall be laid. Now, wait a minute. Cyrus is not even born yet. This is 150 years before his birth. And look at how precise it is. Cyrus would be the one that says to Jerusalem, you'll be rebuilt. Cyrus would be the one that would let the captives go free, maybe a million and a half, two million Israelites in captivity, go back and rebuild your temple. But he's not born. Isaiah names him 150 years before his birth. His birth, And it says, who says to Cyrus, he's my shepherd. Do you know that in Cyrus's boyhood, according to the historical records we have, he was a shepherd. Cyrus was a shepherd, but now he's going to be God's shepherd to let Israel go free, to lead them back. Look, at Isaiah 45, verse 1, thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I've held, to subdue nations before him, to loose the armor of kings, to open him before double gates, and the gates will not be shut. Look, Cyrus would say to the rivers, be dry. One of Cyrus's sacred horses drowned in the Euphrates. He then got the sense he was going to divert the river, and he dug channels, diverted the river, dried it up, marched his armies underneath the walls. But remember, it said the two-leaved gates wouldn't be shut. There were, there were inner walls because of the drunken feast. Those gates are open. His soldiers marched under the walls, came up through those gates that were not shut, attacked and overthrew Babylon. This prophecy was fulfilled exactly like it is. But now, let me show you something incredible. Second Chronicles chapter 36. Second Chronicles chapter 36. Now this is the proclamation of Cyrus. Second Chronicles 36 verse 22. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord spoken by the mouth of Jeremiah be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of the king of Persia so that he made a proclamation throughout all the kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, the king of Persia, all the kingdoms of the earth, the Lord God of heaven has commanded me. And he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judea, who is there among you of all people. May the Lord God be with him. Let him go up. Here is Cyrus passing the decree. But notice that Cyrus says, the Lord God commanded me. How did Cyrus know that that was the command of God? How did he know that? I'd like to imagine this scene. I think it's highly plausible. Daniel, 87 years old. First year of Cyrus. Daniel now maybe 88. And here Cyrus is attacked. Daniel has an audience chamber with Cyrus. Daniel opens to him the book of Isaiah. And, and from the ancient scrolls reads Isaiah, Cyrus is my shepherd. And Cyrus sits there amazed. 150 years before I was born, that was written of me? My shepherd, I was a shepherd. And, the new, and, and I did dry up the river and the leaf gates weren't shut. Daniel continues to read. He goes back here to Chronicles. Daniel tells Cyrus the story of his destiny. And Cyrus, seeing the role that he is to play in the plan of God, seeing the predictions of God's word, Cyrus signs the decree so many in Israel can go free. Prophecy, 
does not guess, it knows. Just as God predicted that Cyrus would be the ruler and the king that would allow Israel to go free. Just as God named Cyrus by name, just as those minute details of prophecy were fulfilled then, so in end time, God has predicted once again, prophetic events in the book of Daniel and in the book of Revelation that will unfold just before the time of the end. And just as surely as prophecy has been fulfilled in the past, so prophecy has been fulfilled and will be fulfilled in the future. Why does God give us prophecy? For two reasons. First, the Bible says that these things I've written before you, that when they come to pass, Jesus said, you may believe. So God gives us prophecy to deepen and strengthen our faith. Faith in his word faith in his purposes, faith that he's in control. There's a second reason God gives us prophecy. God gives us prophecy so that we will be prepared for what's coming. The books of Daniel and Revelation reveal that a great crisis is coming on the world, but we need not be fearful. Through Christ and by Christ and in Christ and because of Christ, we can be ready when Jesus comes. We can be prepared. And the best way to be prepared for the future is to walk in the light God gives you today. Is every day make a recommitment to Christ. Every day have your heart dedicated to him anew and afresh. And to know that he is your righteousness. He is your salvation. He is your savior. And as Jesus says, nobody can pluck you out of my hand. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your love and grace and goodness. We thank you that we are your children, that nobody can pluck us out of your hand. Keep us faithful to you now and through all eternity. Thank you, Lord, that you're never caught by surprise, that the future is in your hands, that we can trust you implicitly. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll be still here in California next week. And so we invite you to join us again. We're going to be studying Daniel chapter six. It's a familiar story of Daniel in the lion's den, but I'll share with you some new twists, new insights. Don't miss it. Hey, and be sure to invite friends to join with you. I know there are many small groups. Hundreds of people are joining our Bible study. Be sure to join us. Once again, if you have any questions, here's where you can uh, get, we'll send in your questions. It's at info at hopelives365.com. Questions, info at hopelives365.com. And if you want the study guide, here's how you get your study guide, hopelives365.com forward slash weekly Bible study. That's hopelives365.com forward slash Bible study. I look forward with great delight to see you next week. May God bless you. And may this week be a wonderful week as you walk with Jesus. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, 
or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.